0: Luke 4, verse 14 to 19. You understand why the music is playing later on, by the way. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we all said, With me, guys. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. It'll make sense in a second. Ain't Ain't nothing like the real thing. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Sing Jesus if you want to. Ain't nothing like the real thing. One more time. Ain't nothing. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Um, Sung by the great Marvin Gaye, probably no truer words have ever been sung before. Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Ain't nothing like the real thing. Uh, This week is Palm Sunday, so we want to welcome you to Palm Sunday. Um, Palm Sunday is this pivot and movement from lament to hope. We, We have been this season called Lent, and we look forward to Easter, which is next Sunday, but in between we have Palm Sunday. And it marks the beginning of this commemoration. of um, The Israelites would, would gather every year to celebrate this Passover week. And in this Passover week, they, they recall the liberation from Egyptian slavery. And what we have in the telling of the story um, of, of Jesus walking into Jerusalem is that his disciples cried out, Blessed is he! Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. There was a longing for a king that was to succeed in all the ways the other previous kings failed. There was a deep, deep longing. And the Israelites, they were victims of hype. You know, we know from history that there were other messiahs who had come before Jesus claiming that they were the one. Uh, but they weren't. And there was this hunger for the real thing. There was this deep, deep hunger for the real thing. And, and we still have that hunger today. This hunger for this real thing. How do I know this? Um, Any uh, West Wing fans? Anybody? A few? I'm just trying to understand um, what kind of context I need to give. But West Wing might be my favorite show um, ever. I mean, it's maybe second to Parks and Rec, but similar themes. So West Wing is a a 90s show that catapulted the great Aaron Sorkin um, into national fame. Um, is the series is based on the American president and his senior staff, right? At the start of the second season, after a fantastic first season, which I highly recommend, at the start of the second season, we see um, that the writers begin writing in their origin stories of how these senior staff members became part of their staff. We see Josh, who we know as the deputy chief of staff, and uh, we find him in a previous job, disgruntled and disillusioned at what he was doing. We learned that he was working at this previous job for their party's presumptive nominee for the president. Um, we, we learned that, that this presumptive nominee has a $50 million war chest that will buffer them against any sort of opposition that they may face. But we also see that he's deeply unhappy. We see that he's unhappy because he realizes that the person he's working for, he doesn't really believe in. They have this, inters- they have this, this great war chest, and, and he doesn't have conviction that this future, this, this soon-to-be president is going to be the thing that he's been waiting for. Um, one day, an old friend of his father shows up to his office. An old friend of his father's invites him to go from D.C. to Nashua, New Hampshire. From the peak of power to, well, Nashua, New Hampshire. Who here has heard of Nashua, New Hampshire? I haven't before this episode. Um, I'm sorry for anyone from New Hampshire. I don't mean anything by that. I'm sure it's very important um, how you vote and. In- the election up in New Hampshire. But um, an old friend of his father's invites him to go to Nashua, New Hampshire, because there's an upstart candidate that uh, this old friend of his father's wants him to see. This, this upstart candidate is a heavy underdog. Um, he goes to Nashua because of obligation and a little bit of curiosity. Um, on his way to Nashua, he visits New York City. And we find that he, he goes to New York City to visit an old friend, um, and, and his, his old friend is now a high-power corporate lawyer. He visits his old friend, and, and we find that his old friend is, is equally unhappy, disillusioned, and dissatisfied. They, they chat for a bit, but before they separate, the lawyer looks at Josh, and he says, Hey, the guy you're working for, he's not the real thing, is he? Josh, uh, because, you know, it's very much where all of his energy goes to, is reluctant to admit it at first, but soon enough, he admits it. But then he looks at his buddy and he says, hey, listen, I'm going up to Nashua. If I find the real thing up there, do you want to know about it? The lawyer responds, you won't have to tell me because I'd see it on your face. Both men were searching for meaning and purpose. Both knew life and politics well enough to know what false hope looked like. You ever had a job you're really looking forward to and then the day you sat in the office, the first week you're like, oh my goodness, not what I hoped. I remember taking my first job after college. I was in Fort Lauderdale, and it was this dream position. I'd heard that, you know, all these guys a couple years older than me had, had taken these positions and had seen the world, you know, 40, 50 different countries in a couple years. But I sat there, and I realized, oh, my goodness, this isn't the real thing. And at 2 a.m., I'm walking around the streets of Fort Lauderdale like, what did I just do? Um, and both men were searching for this meaning and this purpose, and I, j- I get weepy just watching it. Um, if you, I mean, even in light of our current kind of national s- political state, right, I, I get, we'd be watching this because um, his hope, their hope, is our hope. Without a purpose, uh, you and I are dead inside, and everyone promises to offer you purpose, uh, but to echo the late, great Marvin Gaye, ain't nothing like a real thing, baby. So here we are this morning as seekers, longing to know and find the real thing. We long to find the real thing so that maybe, just maybe, we could participate in something greater than ourselves. So that maybe, just maybe, someone can invite us into something worth giving our lives to. And this is where we end our Life of a Disciple series as we go into Easter. The focus this morning is connecting out with a subheading of what does the real thing even look like? Um, if you're here with us this morning and you're not a believer, you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Um, you're in you're many, many ways listening in on a conversation about um, this is what the church is supposed to be. Um, and, and I know for many of, of you who wouldn't call yourself Christian, you're here because you're curious or you're obligated because, um, you know, for various reasons. Um, and there's a chance you're thinking, you know, there's a, there, there, there might be a chance that the truth is buried into whatever the church is doing. But whatever it is, um, the truth is buried under layers and layers of hypocrisy. And so this morning is an attempt to get under those layers of hypocrisy. To the core thing of what our purpose and mission is as a church. And our text from this morning is the start of the ministry of Jesus. So, so at the very start of, of his ministry, we find this story in Luke 4. Luke um, 4. And we pick up in verse 16, and it goes like this. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, There are three parts to this morning's sermon. The prophetic warning, a prophetic king, and a prophetic movement. Um, We'll start with the first. Prophetic warning. Um, Here we go. Now, if you want to understand any sort of people group, or if you want to start a place, the place to begin is to understand the collective trauma that has inflicted that group. If you, if you understand the trauma, then you're better equipped to understand the policies, the architecture, and the poetry of a, of a place. You can't really understand Chicago architecture without understanding the impact of the great Chicago fire, the way that it, it leveled the city. If, if you're trying to understand why airlines are strict about how much shampoo you should bring, you won't really understand that unless you understand 9-11. If you understand the trauma, then you'll get to the beat of, of what happened uh, to the people. And the trauma faced by the Israelites, as documented throughout the Old Testament, is this Babylonian invasion and their subsequent exile from the foreign, to a foreign land. Um, all throughout the, the imagination of the people of Israel is what is this, this thing that called the exile um, and this invasion. And Isaiah, who Jesus is quoting here, um, spends a lot of time talking about that very event. And, and what we find is that in the passage that Jesus is quoting from, it talks about this future hope where there's this messianic king and he's going to rescue all the people who are captive. Um, but, but I think more important to, to our purposes today is the question, um, what exactly led to their exile? You know, if God is all powerful, why did he allow it to happen? And this is the place of the prophetic warning, because from the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, because Jesus is quoting towards the end from Isaiah 61, but from the very beginning, Isaiah chapter one, we find these prophetic warnings all throughout the book. And, um, and this, is, this is the real sort of challenging thing that we're going to be talking about. Um, I'm, I'm going to have it right behind me. I have a different version of my Bible, but, but this is like really moving if we have it with us. We do. So, so let's just, I'll read it. You guys can look along. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, 13 to 17. Um, the prophet is saying, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. So the, the prophets are these people who are so tied to the heart of God that they can understand and speak to what, what, what God is passionate about. New moons, Sabbath, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Here's the verse. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead. The case of the widow. What we find is that true worship required an active concern for the unjust systems that oppress the weak in their cities. And the prophetic warning that Isaiah is giving to the people on behalf of God is he's pretty much saying, You're neglecting the flourishing of your weak neighbors. And your worship means nothing to me if you're neglecting if you're neglecting the situation and you're neglecting the flourishing of your weaker neighbors. A commentator writes, God rejects his people's worship, however lavish, because they use it as a pious evasion of the self-denying demands of helping the weak. Even lifting their hands in prayer avails nothing. It says, for your hands are full of blood. God seems to be more concerned with his people's contribution to the flourishing of the oppressed more than he is with their religious gatherings. And it's a reminder that the people of God exist for the people around them. And, and our primary aim, even here, is not even to build a great church. Um, it's to contribute, love, and serve and impact the people of our city. If we exist for ourselves, there's something really scary about what the prophets are saying. If you exist for yourselves, you would have missed it. Um, and what we find, even today, as it was then, is that it's really easy to participate in systems that do not benefit the under-resourced in our city. What am I talking about? Here, here's, here's an easy example about how it's easy to neglect what's going on because I'm, I'm just learning about this myself. So um, the open secret is that our church exists in the more affluent part of Jersey City. And when you are on this side of the city, it's easy to be insulated the problems of our, of our less affluent neighbors. right? One example of this is the current crisis of Jersey City's public schools. Um, according to the state formula, the public school system in this city is underfunded by $100 million. Um, and what that's led to is increased class sizes, inconsistent access to water. If you notice, the water fountains outside are normally all, like, plastic around it. Um, and that's because of the, the funding shortage. In addition, there's a loss of critical staff. We have schools in the city who are sharing nurses, right, school nurses. Um, and there's also an incredible loss of after-school programs. We have, we have teachers in the room whose, whose jobs are up in the air. Um, because, of, because of the crisis. And what, what, what is interesting is because the city has developed in incredible ways in a short amount of time. You know, if you're from the area, you realize that the, the, the city has improved in a dramatic way over the last decade. Yet the downtown area, most of us, including, including me and my family, um, live in, have largely developed on these tax abatements um, that do not directly lead to additional revenue for our city's schools. Abatements are structured so that the portion of the tax revenue the developers would have had to pay to fund schools is the portion reduced or eliminated. So, so the city benefits as far as you know um, uh, the city budget, but the school budget is completely ignored by these tax abatements. Um, and and look, I mean, I worked for a real estate developer for a short amount of time, so I understand that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pathetic to the to the idea that your investors have to. Um, or benefit in a great way when you have these tax abatements. But the reality is, um, without our effort, um, or, or without our, our even understanding that, that the, the poor in our city don't benefit from the development that's taking place in the downtown area. And one of the more wonderful things about Jersey City is that it was recently ranked the second most diverse city in the country. Yet when, these, when schools scuff suffer, the poor and the foreigner are disproportionately affected because under-resourced families don't have options compared to more affluent neighbors. In schools, as we all know, our main, main avenue for under-resourced families to escape cycles of poverty, yet our schools are not a place to serve the most vulnerable in our city. So, I mean, if you could write the check, please, for the $100 million, you know, let's just get this over with. Um, no, but, but seriously, we, we're unaware of how our city struggles because we're prone to neglect. We could, we could easily go about our days, as I have, living here and not even knowing about it, without understanding that the poor are disproportionately affected by different systems that are created. Yet the scripture says God's people ignored their call to seek justice and instead only concerned themselves with their own fulfillment, and it led to a crushing captivity. Uh, we were made to sacrifice, for sacrificial service to others, yet we primarily focus on our own advancement, achievement, and fulfillment. And, and here's the warning, with increasing affluence... Uh, We have increased opportunity to insulate ourselves from the needs of others. We can buffer ourselves from the needs of others. Where do we see this? Um, Abigail Disney is the heiress to um, the Disney family. And uh, a good buddy of mine, who I'll explain a little bit more about later, uh, sent me this article. And let let me just explain this to you. So she was recently interviewed um, about how her, her family... Just growing up with wealth, you know, she was apparently they weren't always sort of like mega wealthy, but, you know, there was a sort of a a renaissance in in the Disney company when Eisner took over. Uh, But point of the story is their dad got a jet and it sort of ruined the family. His dad, their their dad got a private jet and it ruined their family. And so they have this interesting back and forth about about this jet. Right. And so the interviewer asked, in what ways did your dad change other than having a jet? She says, if I were queen of the world, I would pass a law against private jets because they enable you to get around a certain reality. You don't have to go through an airport terminal. You don't have to interact. You don't have to be patient. You don't have to be uncomfortable. And these are the things that remind us we're human. She goes on to say, and I don't want a private jet because it hollows you from the inside. Now most of us here don't have private jets. If you do, please please let me know. Um, but but the technologies around us form us in a way that, that make us feel like we're the center of the universe. Um, now, now there, here's the part that's interesting. So I get most of my cultural commentary from a buddy of mine who lives in San Francisco. And so last night, he actually texted me and said, hey, I'm going to be here. I'm in town today. And so um, he's right there. So if you have any problems with this next section, email him. <clears throat> uh, but, but along with, with sending me this email, he gave me a little commentary about, you know, how the jet life is applicable to our sort of not as jet-like, you know, um, I mean, I'm guessing you don't have a jet. But we could apply similar things to our current situation. And this is what, I'm sorry, dude. I didn't know you were coming here today. Um, And I promise, yes, I do do this all the time um, where people feed me good things and I just tell people about it. But um, he he gave me this commentary. I'm really, I'm sorry. Um, He gave me this commentary about him moving and taking an internship out in San Francisco during college. And at the time, um, you know, before kind of the, this, this current Uber world that we live in, he had to take the bus. And he talks about how um, when he had to take the bus, there was no escape from other people, right? You had the, the folks who would, um, who, who would jump in and just ride it all day, and you had, you had the downtown finance guys who um, ignored everybody, and, um, and they were all on this bus. And he talks about how in an Uber world, though he caveats and says that most of the time he does use Uber pool because he's not a crazy person, um, in an Uber world, you could go from point A to point B without really having to deal with anybody else. And in a simple way, we could buffer, insulate ourselves from the realities of those around us. So feeling inspired after his email, I took my first Uber pool trip. And it's true. If you've never taken Uber pool, I mean, I don't use Uber you know, too often, but, but when I do, I just go straight to my destination. That's the point. But if you ever go from Uber to Uber pool, you know it drives you just a little bit crazy. And it's just, it's just that much more inconvenient. And so we buffer ourselves. It's, it, we're so quick to, to, to become used to this new normal where we, we don't have to see anybody else. We don't have to deal with anybody's problems. We don't have to deal with anybody else's pain. And we think, um, we think our deepest fulfillment, in his words... Will come from unfettered, I let his word, unfettered, pursuit of our desires. But our disregard for God's concern for others leads us to our own internal dysfunction. As Abigail Disney is saying, it hollows us from the inside. Because without knowing it, we are establishing our own many kingdoms. And this is what gives us anxiety. Because without realizing it, we live with the pressure of managing our own fiefdoms. Your estate. Your desire to to manage this this mini-kingdom is driving you insane. So why would I even say that? Why why would I say that you are establishing your own mini-kingdom, your own fiefdom? Um, In one point of Israel's history, they didn't have a king, but they wanted like a physical king. And so they go to their prophet, and they say, give us a king. And this is what the prophet Samuel said to the people. He said, this is what a king will do. The king will reign over you and will claim and you will claim um, over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. That sounds great, doesn't it? Well, for, like, to, to have that sort of power, to be able to co- instruct people to, to carry you in their chariots. But what we realize is that technology, and some of it, um, is built to make us feel like we're rulers of the world around us. You want a chariot? There's an app for that. Just whip it out. Just whip out the app. You want, you know, what size of the chariot you want? How luxurious are you feeling on this date night? Um, you want bakers? There's an app for that also, without leaving your couch. They say, I mean, the, the growth, right, um, of these apps that could service us at whatever whim we desire. But the formative thing, the thing that it's creating in us is this, 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 this feeling, it's forming us to think that we are the center of the universe. Yeah, this is the very thing also that, that makes us miserable. So on Palm Sunday, we believe that something shifts. There's a king that comes. This Jesus who shows up and says that only he can be the center of the universe. And this is the next part, this prophet king. And what I want to say this morning, this is the choice we have. The choice is will you build your life with you as the ruler or will you submit to Jesus as the ruler? You on the throne is hollowing you out from the inside. Not only is it hollowing you out, when you get hollowed out, your neighbors get neglected. Um, And so the question is why should you let him rule? You should let him rule because he is a gentle and kind ruler. And the reality is, you are stuck. In biblical language, you thought you were ruling, but you are actually captive. You are captive to your own desires. And you need a king. You need a true king. So when Jesus shows up to tell the world that he's the real thing, what does he do? He appeals to the the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, and compared him to the the, the king, the type of king that would take everything for himself, This is the kind of king that he describes himself to be. He says in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and the release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. What we find here is when Jesus shows up, he, 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 he's a king that trades beauty. He trades you beauty for the areas of life where you've only caused devastation. Perhaps there's no greater example of this than at the cross. Today's a big day, Palm Sunday, but, but also because um, Game of Thrones start. I'm not a massive fan, but my wife is. And so I learned a lot. Um, And she gave me this quote, you know, this whole sense of when you play the game of thrones, you win or you die. I don't know how it fits, but it's Game of Thrones Sunday, you know what I'm saying? Um, but, But here's the point. All other kings in all of history will say, you die and I take your kingdom. But this king, the king we anticipate on Palm Sunday says, though you're often rebellious and apathetic to me, I will die so that you can enjoy my kingdom. Why would you not want a king like that? At the cross, his death becomes our invitation into an everlasting kingdom marked by beauty and flourishing. And once you taste life with him, he will send you out to bring others in. And this is the movement from this prophet king to this prophetic movement It's because what we believe as Christians is that no one is really opposed to the kingdom of Christ. Uh, People might hate Christians. Christians have made a lot of bad mistakes. But if people really understood the kingdom of Christ, no one would be opposed to it. Because all want the things that Jesus offers. Justice and beauty and peace. True peace and flourishing. What we believe is all want these things. They just haven't met their king yet. And the only way they will ever meet their king is if the king's people, some of us here in this room, the king's people, will choose here and now to live in a different way that will proclaim a different world order. And it's the king's people living in the king's way that's what's going to change the world. And that's the only thing that has ever changed the world. Um, some examples of this. Um, historians talk about Christians living during the plague of Syrian, right, where there was this massive plague, um, in the third century, and what you found was that the Christians were running into the city to care for the ill when everybody else was running out, right? The, the, the Christians, I mean, this is documented where, where they talk about how the Christians saw it, the devastation that was taking place as an opportunity to live their values. When everybody else is thinking, oh, no, we have to save ourselves because we're about to die, the Christians were like, okay, now is the time where we step up. Now's our time. Now is the time to show the world the real thing. This is what it looks like. Um, emperor Julian, who, who was the pagan emperor uh, uh, during another season where, where the Christians were living out their values. He complained in a letter to his pagan high priest of, of Galatia in 362. Um, he complains um, that the Christians exemplified these, these, these moral virtues and that the pagans needed to equal their virtues. Because it's the the Christians living out their virtues, that's what caused this incredible growth in the Christian movement. Um, He says this, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by our priests, the impious Galileans, that's what he called the the Christians, these impious Galileans observed this and demoted themselves to benevolence. He wrote, these impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours also, but ours as well everyone can see that our people lacked aid from us. Now, now, now see what's happening here. So the Christians are throwing their bodies in the way of death to care for people in society, the, the people in society that the that, 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 that most of the world did not care for. And this is how the Christian, Christianity exploded from a local peasant religion to a global movement. It exploded to the, to the point that, look, we're here today. Because Christians before us were, were faithfully putting their lives on the line. What I want to say, and this is, this is where I close this morning, is um, on Palm Sunday we follow the real king who by his death and resurrection is establishing a new world order. And the world deserves to be invited into this real thing. The world to be, needs to be invited into this real thing and the world is invited as we embody it to care for those in our city who do not have the opportunities that we have. It has only ever been this way that this movement goes forward. Um, sacrificial service for others. We believe here at Hope that um, you will. N- this is not only an obligation, but this is the key to joy. And as we give ourselves to this together, um, our city is changed and people are brought into the kingdom. And we live this, Because the king we welcome on Palm Sunday is a king like no other. And this king, this king is the real thing. And as Marvin Gaye said, ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Ain't nothing like the real thing. Let's pray. Father, we... We worship you because we are so hungry for the real thing. We live um, in the midst of a world that, um, that offers us product after product, um, job opportunity at jo- after job opportunity, prom- promising that, that it will be the thing that satisf- satisfies us, gives us purpose and meaning. But Lord, we, we've done enough of those things to know that it doesn't do that. Lord, that only you can. And so this morning, as we come to you, we, we admit that we are captive to our own desires. Our, we're captive to our own unfettered pursuit. Lord, and we need to be liberated and freed from it. We need the thing that only you can give. And so would you bring it, Lord? Would you bring it, all of it this morning? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.